Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wondery Country of the Kulin Nations, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook. surprised me how little women talk about financial independence. They talk a lot about equality, about uh, they, they see themselves as feminists and yet a lot of the feminist tracts don't deal with money at all. This week's show looks at traditional couples and traditional marriages, but in an Australia of changing realities around money, expectations and migrations. Our guests have spent the last 30 years thinking about money and relationships, not in terms of dollars, cents, drachma or rupees, but about how we use it to say something to our partners, our families and to express our relationships. I'm Supriya Singh. I'm a professor for the sociology of communications at RMIT University. To get started, I had a question for Supriya. I mean, they say money talks, but why don't we always feel okay talking about money? I think it's because it may reveal aspects of the relationship that they find difficult, because Money can mean dependence, it can mean power, it can mean insecurity, it can mean learned attitudes towards money, spending and saving in the family. And uh, sometimes if something is difficult, they they push it right down and hope that it will get papered over. A central idea of your work is that Money's better understood in terms of its social aspects. So can you explain what you mean by this and why you think we'd all have a better idea of how money works if we saw money this way? Well, money is both a market phenomena and a personal issue. Uh, It's also a medium of caring in the family. So if you only see it as a market phenomena, then you miss some of the dynamics behind money. And so actually the interesting part of the work is how the market and the personal and the family meld together. Yeah, in in uh, traditional economics, 
money is seen as homogenous and best defined in terms of number and quantum. Uh, but when you look at money as it works out in real life, there are many different kinds of money. Uh, if you look at just the way you do your bank accounts, uh, and I think like we were talking before, it mimics, you know, jars on the mantelpiece. And uh, I've heard some of my uh, participants speak of having a separate savings account for the rent, a separate savings account for a holiday, a separate account for the mortgage, a separate account just for discretionary expenditure, so that they separate these different kinds of money in different lots, as it were. Well, marriage money, at least in the way I've studied it among the middle-class Anglo couples, it is how they uh, deal with money in their marriage. And the way they deal with money in their marriage is most often they see it as joint money. Whether all of it is joint or not is different, but they see the jointness of money is symbolizing the togetherness in marriage. Now, that's not the way you deal with money in the marketplace. But banking money in Australia, uh, the joint accounts became very popular in the generation that is now in their 60s and 70s, uh, where, you know, the mortgage was usually joint. And actually, banks wanted it joint because the privacy laws meant that they couldn't look up the credit history of the other person unless it was joint. And these people, uh, when I did my work in the 1990s on money among married couples, Anglo-married couples, uh, they often told of how their parents did it very differently. The mother might have a passbook account or maybe no account at all. And they, she'd run up an account with the corner store. And then the father would pay it by check at the end of the month. So it was very different. And it didn't mean there was no jointness in money. It just meant that they symbolized marriage and banking in a different way. And you've suggested as well that this, um, you know, which I guess you're implying is a very positive celebration of togetherness, that sometimes it can mask issues of power and dependence in husband and wife relationships. Could you say something more about that? Yes. And, and it was interesting because if you keep talking of your money as joint and everything being together then you also avoid the question of how much did he put in and how much did I put in. This he and I putting in how much money only really comes up uh, at separation and divorce. Then they immediately start calculating what did he put in, what did I put in. But while you're married, particularly when at least uh, it used to be perhaps more common than it is now, but still, it is often the woman who goes part-time or stops paid work when the children are young. And that means that there is always uh, a period of time when she is financially dependent on the husband. But this goes against the ideology of partnership 
in Australian marriage. So then you say we are together together. And it works very well if the partnership continues. If the partnership doesn't continue, then you immediately find out that money is owned by the person who earns it. The research we've been talking about is where you talk to Anglo-Australian couples. But I know that later you spoke to Indian migrant families in Australia, as well as, again, later other minority ethnic groups from across the global south. And so what are the different dynamics and factors that come into play between couples of these different ethnic, cultural and migrationary backgrounds? Well, one of the major differences is that in the Anglo group, we were talking couples. But when you go to cultures of the global south, and by that, you know, Asia, Middle East, Latin America, Africa, you're talking family boundaries. Now, you might be talking in some cases a nuclear family, but in many cases you're talking an extended family. That's one of the differences. The second difference is the flow of money, the direction of the flow of money. In Australia, the money flows from parents and grandparents to children. It doesn't flow the other way, from children to parents to grandparents, unless there's extreme need. And it also doesn't flow because the parents don't want to accept that money. There is a lot of value placed in being able to manage, in being independent. Now, that's very different from the attitudes I discovered in the Global South. The money flows two ways. The money goes from parents and grandparents to children, but the money also flows from children to parents and grandparents and maybe extended kin. Uh, that's a very huge difference, and it kind of illustrates what I was saying about the melding of money in the marketplace and money in the family, because remittances to developing countries at 435 billion US dollars, they are more than three times greater than foreign aid, than official development assistance. And except for China, greater than foreign direct investment. This is one of the largest flows of funds. And this is a market phenomena, right? It's something that governments use to securitize loans so that they get cheaper loans. It's something that governments use to alleviate poverty. But actually the money is flowing from a migrant worker uh, to his or her family because they're wanting to show care and love for the family and also to answer need. And you mentioned that both migrant men and women are sending money to their families. But, you know, it's different depending whether on the migrant and whether the recipient or male or female. What are the gender differences that are linked to remittances? It depends a lot on the kinship system. In India, in patrilineal families where the descent, you know, it's father to son and you take the father's name and... uh, Say from Australia, it's often Indian men who will send money to their parents. It's changing a bit now because, you know, girls are coming to study as well. And they have been used to sending money to their parents when single. But it's something they have to negotiate because the husband's family usually feel they own the money. 
that comes into the boy's household. It's part of the joint family kind of system. But in matrilineal systems, where the relationship between the mother and the daughter is central, say in some of the communities in Ghana, then it is the woman migrant who will send money to her mother, the mother. So, but things, you know, change. There's a feminization of migration, particularly where women are going for unskilled or semi-skilled jobs, say from Sri Lanka, from the Philippines, from uh, uh, now increasingly Indonesia and Bangladesh then they are sending money to help look after their children. Latin America also, the maids would send money to help to their parents to help look after their children. So it depends upon cultural context and the kind of work that people do. And as you said before, the money is not just about the money in a way. It's it's It means something else. Um, you suggested earlier that it's more of a meaning of having a gift rather than just, you know, subsistence or wealth creation. Yeah. I think uh, that's one of the very huge differences in the cultural meanings of money, particularly if you look at the Anglo group on one side and the others. Uh, in India... Uh, money as a gift is often the preferred gift and you have special uh, decorated envelopes you know with a little gold thread in which you put the money and uh, you transform the money by packaging it in this way the chinese do it of course uh, and one of the most important ways they do it is the ang pao for Chinese New Year, you give it in a red envelope with an appropriate design. And and you just have to look back at some of the Greek weddings and pinning money on the bride's dress, you know, when when the dance is happening. Or uh, you, you look at it in Africa. You have to give money at a birth, at a marriage, at a funeral. And this money now... Uh, the giving of money has been transformed a little bit because in many parts of Africa, even if you're not present at the occasion, you can send it from mobile to mobile. So there's a lot of pressure to give even if you can't attend. There is a pressure, uh, particularly I think I've heard people in Kenya talk about it as a pressure because with this mobile money, and I'm talking about M-Pesa over here, um, what they do is on the invitation card, you know, it's a little bit like those gift registries where they kind of suggest to you what you might want to give. So on the invitation, they will put their mobile number for M-Pesa. Okay. Uh, so it's that kind of pressure. It's It's similar. And usually the gift registries uh, have things that maybe you wouldn't have want to, wanted to give such a large present. <laughs> Across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook, and I'm speaking with Supriya Singh about the social side of money in relationships how we use it, what it means to us, 
and how couples navigate shared and family finances, even across borders. Uh, because even if a person moved, say, from Delhi to Mumbai, this sending of money would have happened. So this is just across borders. The sharing of money is culturally important, but the sending of money across borders leads to this huge flow of funds. Perhaps in some countries, actually, the urban-rural remittances are greater than international, but we don't know enough about it. Uh, we know a lot more about international remittances because the World Bank, since 2003, has been focusing on it. And have you had an opportunity to speak to um, households and couples in Australia where people have mixed ethnic um, backgrounds? You know, where one comes from the Anglo tradition you've been speaking of and another partner comes from, you know, what, what, what's very clear in this situation is a very different background. Well, actually, not so much in my work uh, in a direct manner. I remember there was one uh, Italian-Australian uh, uh, couple and the woman said she has a lot of comfort in the fact that her husband is Italian because if she had married somebody without an Italian background, he would have found it very difficult to understand why she had to spend so much money at her nephew's wedding, you know, the dresses and all the gifts and all that they were required to give. Sometimes it is actually more difficult because of the way different families deal with money. You know, men who've come uh, where their parents have always had a joint account, marrying women where their parents have not had this kind of joint account, then there's a little bit of pressure to reciprocate one parental mold or the other. Uh, but uh, actually, one of the most pertinent comments was in India, where an Australian academic was married to an Indian academic, and both were sociologists of different kinds. And uh, I knew both of them in Delhi. And when I showed my paper, uh, my first paper many years ago on money among Anglo couples, the woman who was Australian said to her husband, see, I've been telling you all along, it is different. <laughs> you know what surprised me? was how little financial, how, how little women talk about financial independence. They talk a lot about equality, about uh, they, they see themselves as feminists. And yet a lot of the feminist tracts don't deal with money at all. Uh, I was surprised that some of the early feminist literature in Australia I couldn't see money indexed. So when they talk about independence, they don't necessarily talk about strategies to attain financial independence. They don't always talk about 
how much it is going to cost. I'm not saying that people should always make choices with cost in mind. But I think you have to be aware of how much it is costing whom. And the emphasis on financial independence usually comes with the breakdown of relationship rather than within the relationship. And it's that reflected by the migrant families that you spoke to also? Or is that something that you found to be very Anglo? No, uh, I mean, I, most of my detailed ethnographic work has been with the Indian migrants, and the gender of money is male. Yeah, so not particularly. Perhaps more so than anywhere else. And I think and one of the projects that I'm hoping to be involved with is going to look into how this maleness, the traditional maleness of money, uh, when it encounters the normative jointness of marriage money in Anglo groups in Australia, which means to say that people really think this is the Australian way of doing things, uh, what kind of negotiation will take place there and how conflict will happen because uh, at the center of our project is uh, gender, money, gender and money and how it impacts on family violence. This is not something that I had looked at before. And, but money is a very important element in some 80% of cases of family violence in Australia. And so we are going to be looking at the Anglo and the Indian experience of money and intimate partner violence and money and elder abuse. And I know uh, the way I'm going to phrase this question is not something an academic will like, but what do you expect you will find? The question arose really uh, from interviews that went on a tangent that I was studying money, migration and family and I was studying remittances. And then I found there were a couple of cases where the marriage had actually broken up uh, with a lot of emotional violence, if not physical violence, because the woman wanted more control over her money, particularly to help her family, especially if she was earning the money. And there was a lot of resistance from the male partner. There was a feeling... Uh, and this is the woman's story, so I haven't heard it from both ends. But what they were saying is that the man and his family thought that all the money in the house was owned by the man and his family, whereas the woman in one of these cases was the main earner. And the man was sending her money to his family. And this was not a question at the center of that research, but it was happening 
in such a explosive way that it became the question of the project that I hope to be involved with in the near future. Yeah, you felt it couldn't be ignored. Yes, and and this is the way research happens. You start with one question, and particularly qualitative research. You start with one question, and the stories you hear throw up another question that you did not have the gumption to ask. (laughs) It sounds like important questions. Um, And you mentioned you came across elder abuse. What, What dynamics have you been seeing in your interviews on that area? This is even less spoken of in the Indian community, perhaps, than any other. It's best reflected in media, in film, because when people talk about it, they talk about all the positive stuff. And yet you hear from the media that there are parents who have come and maybe given much of their property to their children, and then they find that they they are now have to put their names up for community housing and welfare. And there are films where parents have assumed that their children will look after them and given all their money or most of their money to the children, and the children have totally different agendas. So uh, it's, it's sort of recent, a recent phenomena in the Indian community in Australia. We don't know much about it because... Uh, the flying grandmother, grandfather syndrome is quite recent. And what's that? Well, uh, parents uh, in from India and from China, now they routinely come over to help their children with childcare. So that's temporary. Then over time, you know, they might want to move uh, to get permanent residence and stay most of their time here. Then they... When I talk to the parents, they say they are very willing to divest some of the property that they have in India and put it in Australia, you know, for joint purposes. And often they keep a little bit, but depending upon how much they give in, how much they keep, we don't quite know whether uh, these relationships will survive as they survived in India across borders. Uh, I wouldn't want to make a hypothesis of how they'd go, but it would be interesting to see the dynamics of this kind of family money when parents join their children to come and live in Australia. Thank you to our guest, Supriya Singh. This is Aoife Cook on Women on the Line. In today's show, you've heard music from Ham Sandwich and Donna Summers. Tune in next week. We'd love to hear your thoughts or comments about the program, so please send an email to our new email address, womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line 
is Slideshow at Free University by Latif.